So you are sannyasi, a monk, and also to some extent religious leader, but at the same time you are a scholar, a writer, and academic teacher. So how you connect these two worlds in everyday life? Um, it's uh, sometimes a challenge to connect the two lives, but I would say I'm very fortunate in this regard. I found it's very possible to bring the two worlds together because my area of scholarship is very much connected with my religious tradition and My scholarship is in the area of religious studies. That's my training in scholarship. And I've been somehow been able to kind of run two tracks. They're, they're sort of parallel tracks in a way for me. It's, um, yeah, in that respect, one might say I quite fortunate, um, but it's not maybe so unusual. There are scholars of religion who are themselves religious practitioners, and it's, you know, it's possible somebody pursues their religious tradition through scholarship because that's what they're interested in. You know, there are scholars of uh, Christian tradition, of Catholicism, they are themselves Catholic. There's Catholic scholars of religion who study Buddhism. There's all kinds. But in my case, it's been generally, somehow the two streams have, let's say, flowed together fairly nicely. At the same time, there's always, there's always a tension there as well, because modern scholarship is assuming a position Uh, that is, in some respect, distant from that which you're studying with regard especially to religion. And so, yeah, there's some tension there as well. But for me, it's a, it makes for an interesting challenge. I'm enlivened by the tension, I suppose you can say. And maybe we could say there's a creative tension that makes it possible to generate uh, new ways of understanding that wouldn't be there without the tension. Sometimes you are searching uh, ways how to reduce this tension, right? As I remember, you told some time ago about being insider and outsider uh, at the same time. So you see the same thing sometimes from distance and from outside and sometimes but at the same time you are you are inside yeah and it's more complicated than that because anybody living in the modern world today no matter how sort of fundamentalist they might be in their religious tradition their religious practice necessarily they're very much exposed to Uh, the secular world and uh, the modern, the modern ways of the world. So there's no clean line between inside and outside. That's it's kind of an artificial distinction. 
one can emphasize, of course, one can say, well, I'm not an, I'm not a practitioner of that religion. I simply study it. There are, of course, many scholars like that as well. But then I would ask, so why are you really so interested in that religion? <laughs> you know, is there something, it could be something about their own family history. You know, my grandmother was following this, and I just, you know, could never figure it out, so I'm concerned in that way, or unlimited reasons one might have. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I was looking and I was observing your different writing projects. As I remember, the biggest were uh, Attending Krishna's Image and also a project about Bhagavata Purana. The last big project is uh, titled... Um, oh, yeah, you have this book in your hands. Kaukar in Hindu Animal Ethics. I'm reading this book now. And I'd like to ask you about this project uh, particularly. Mm -hmm. So how idea of writing this book uh, appeared? I was invited by the director of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics to write a book on Hinduism and animal ethics, uh, which would be one volume in a series, which he is the editor of, uh, being published by this particular publisher, Palgrave Macmillan. He said, we have this book series uh, with so many volumes on animal ethics, but we don't have anything about Hinduism and animal ethics. So... Um, It would be nice if you could write. I got to know him. That's maybe another story, but I became kind of involved in his Center for Animal Ethics. And uh, Professor Andrew Lindsay, he is this uh, director of the center, and he is the editor of this book series. So he asked me one time, oh, that must have been five years ago, if I would write such a book. And at the time, I just kind of, you know, said, well, interesting idea, but I don't know. <laughs> I didn't commit myself to it. Uh, and But then he asked me again, uh, maybe I met him a year later, and he said, it'd be nice if you would write this book. And I again, I didn't feel like it was, uh, I didn't know how to... Hinduism, it's a huge topic. And I just couldn't really grasp how I would do it. I didn't think much about it. And then he asked me a third time. And on the third time, he said, I, want, I would really like you to write this book because you are a practitioner. He knows me quite well in that way. And, uh, and that really kind of struck me. Oh, he actually wants... He recognizes that I'm a scholar and a practitioner, and he likes the combination. And that struck me. I thought, okay, from my religious background tradition, it makes me think, aha, uh -huh, maybe the Lord wants me to do this. Maybe Krishna wants me to do this. So uh, I thought about it. I started thinking about it seriously, and I th then I thought, Well, what is it within this, whole, what could be a vast subject, 
that would be of immediate interest for my religious community. And immediately I thought of cows. And of course, cows is, everyone associates cows and Hinduism. But there's been a lot written on that subject, but not really, a, it's not comprehensive in sort of one place in the sense that this book is. So I asked him, this professor, what if I would focus the book in this way on cows? And he said, great, that's fine, go for it. Yeah, so that was, um, it was, you can say, by invitation. I still had to go through a process of um, making a formal proposal to the publisher, um, but um, that all went very quickly and smoothly. With his support? Yeah, with his support. Uh, the only sort of challenge was one of the things they ask in the proposal is how much time do you expect that you will need to uh, have a finished manuscript? And I initially wrote, I expect I'll need three years. Yeah, for a good academic monograph, that's not unreasonable to hold proper research and everything. And they wrote back and said, well, uh, we don't do contracts longer than two years. Well, okay. Uh, I could have said, then I'll get back to you after one year. But then uh, it wouldn't be sure whether they would accept if, you know, if I'm going to start researching for a year and then come back and they say, oh, actually, we're not interested in your book. So... I had to kind of agree, okay, I'll do it in two years. At the same time with books and publishers, it's not uncommon when you get about six months before the contract deadline, if you know you're not going to make it, you just tell them, I'm not going to make it. And they'll usually say, okay, so we'll give you another six months or whatever. Um, but anyway, I decided, okay, this is uh, going to be, for me, an interesting topic because I knew that cows is it's a hot topic in, in India. It's quite a politicized subject. And at the same time, uh, within my tradition, my own guru, His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, was very, very strongly speaking that human culture, in order to be fully civilized, there must be protection of cows. He called it uh, cow protection. And our society, ISKCON, has made serious efforts in this direction since he gave that instruction in the late 1960s, uh, but with one couldn't say we've had huge success with it. We have some farm communities in different parts of the world. And so I felt one thing that would be valuable also within our society, ISKCON, uh, would be to have something like this, a kind of, I can't say exhaustively comprehensive, it at all, but something that focuses on history and uh, the philosophy 
the ethics, something which really sets everything out carefully, could be helpful for us, as well as being of value for a wider public. So that's what got me started. In this way, the topic crystallized. Yeah. <laughs> okay. As, uh, when you talked about this uh, talk with Professor Andrew Lindsay, immediately one image came to my mind when my colleague or someone from family realized that I was in India. So they immediately, many times, they asked, Uh, so I heard that there are holy cows walking through the street. And, you know, is it true <laughs> <laughs> that they are going there here and there freely, etc.? Yeah. Do you have the same experience that people are asking, is it, is it really true you can <laughs> find holy cow on, on the street? And yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is uh, of course, a big topic, uh, as I understand, big topic in India, but this is also big topic outside of India, mm. how India is perceived. Yeah, yeah. perception yeah. of India with cows wandering in the streets is a very common thing. Yeah, That's yeah. true. Because it's true, there are cows <laughs> wandering in the streets and uh, on the highways and so on, because there is... Well, it's complicated, and I discuss that in the book. But on the one side, there's a lot of uh, respect for cows. There is a sense of their being sacred. And there's a lot of neglect of cows. So one reason that cows are wandering about is because they've simply been left to their own devices to, to survive as best they can. So that's... Um, become a bigger issue as industrialization has increased in India. So let's go back to the moment we started working on, on the book itself, mm. uh, how, how you started to collect uh, your uh, data, I mean, research, etc. Well, I started sketching out uh, what, were, what would be the different questions to address. Uh, I, I knew I have to make some kind of a survey of uh, the traditional literature, uh, especially the Sanskrit literature, uh, going back to the earliest text, the Rig Veda, for which, fortunately, uh, there's been, uh, in recent years, a first-class translation in English has been done. And what made it even more convenient was I was able to get digital version of that translation, uh, searchable. And so you want to see... I knew that uh, the Rig Veda refers to cows a lot. And to save time, because it's a very big text with more than 1,000 hymns of, yeah, between four and 40 verses each. Just type in the word cow and hit enter. <laughs> and I was then able to go through those quite quickly and uh, draw out um, passages that were particularly interesting 
so I did this with uh, the early Vedic literature, then uh, the Upanishads are kind of the next genre after the Veda, Vedic Samhita. Then I moved to the epics. Actually, I just took the Mahabharata and with some help from someone who had been reading, because the Mahabharata is huge, had been reading a section. I was called attention to a section that particularly deals with cows. That saved a lot of time. Then the Bhagavatam, Srimad Bhagavatam. I was already familiar. That was easy. The, some modern literature. Uh, I, I knew there is a book in Hindi about cows, uh, extensive book about uh, with many articles, but I didn't know how to get it. So some inquiring and some gradual, you know, you have connections and they have connections and eventually you get what you want. <laughs> and at the same time, you feel like uh, there's an invisible hand helping you, <laughs> divine hand. So like that, uh, the first chapter came together fairly easily in that respect uh, in terms of materials. But then to go through it and understand how to make a co cohesive argument, uh, this is the challenge. In any case, that was first chapter. Second chapter was, I, I understood, I have to deal with modern history. And this just meant reading some modern Indian history and finding out that there was, starting in the late 19th century, there was uh, what came to be known as uh, the cow protection movement. So people became activists. We have to protect our cows. What were the conditions around that? What, what were the political conditions around that? So there's a lot written on that topic. So a lot of the work is sort of boiling down and bringing together and keeping the focus on the subject of cows, Hinduism, ethics, animal ethics. And then uh, I realized that modern history is not just this cow protection movement, but it's also intellectual history. And the intellectual history is controversial. Uh, there are different views on what the ancient literature is saying about cows and also closely related about animal sacrifice and about the eating of meat. So I, I saw I need to go through, I have to wade through uh, these controversies and try to see, okay, what what is it that needs to be said? And it was not so difficult, but it was somewhat challenging because, for one thing, uh, you get into areas where people have very strong feelings, strong convictions, and you want to make sure you're not you're not really taking sides. But as a scholar, you're trying to represent everyone in a balanced way. At the same time, you want to be an historian. 
So uh, there are those who argue that actually in ancient times they were never sacrificing animals. I found that this argument, I find it weak because there's too much literature which describes in great detail about the practice of animal sacrifice and the distribution of the meat, who gets which part of the animal. Why would they go into such detail if they're not actually doing it? Somebody must be doing it. Maybe maybe not many. Maybe it's just one Vedic clan in one village. This is part of the problem of judging ancient uh, Vedic history. You actually don't know how widespread something was going on. It's just all you have is the text. You don't have uh, any external evidence. There are no archaeological sites. There's just nothing there. So uh, there's a lot of, you can say, educated guessing, but sometimes you have to say, well, we don't know. But you can say it's probable, it's most probable that this was going on. So I discussed that in the second part of the second chapter, which is called the third chapter, actually, because the introduction is the first. Uh, yeah, and then and then I, I, I certainly... I, I knew from the beginning I want to um, I want to do some ethnography. I want to interview some people in India who are involved more or less directly with taking care of cows, with people who have goshalas, with which means cow shelters. One sort of person that I couldn't really access was uh, the sort of the cowherds who are really, how to say, they're very simple people who, you know, you, you can't speak English with them. And if I could speak, <laughs> even if I could speak Hindi fluently, I may not be able to communicate because Maybe they have uh, their own dialect. And beside that, how to actually bring questions that they could... It's a different world for some of these people, the way they live and the way they think and everything. So I was dealing with mainly people who are fairly educated and also generally have some connection with Western culture so they could understand my questions even. Uh, some managers of Goshalas like that. But it would have been interesting. It would, I don't know, it would be, um, it would take somebody with really good language skills to, to interview the real uh, sort of hardcore <laughs> cowherds, you know, some of the, yeah, anyway, so, but still, <clears throat> I wanted to do some ethnography, and I was able to do that. I spent a few months. I had a lot of help. I met a lot of very helpful people, uh, and uh, sometimes I had someone traveling with me, helping translating. 
And I was able to visit some very interesting projects. Um, Patmeda, I mentioned in the book, is a huge, uh, huge project in southwestern Rajasthan uh, with more, to, more than 40,000 cows. And on the other extreme, I talked with people who had 10 cows or 12 or 15 cows, uh, someone with 100 cows, uh, different numbers, but also different kinds of arrangements, uh, physical arrangements, economic arrangements, institutional arrangements. But I have to say I didn't uh, have nearly as much time as I would have liked for that portion. Again, the publisher said two years. I couldn't spend uh, more than altogether, I don't know, maybe I was, so to say, out on the field um, four months doing that work, that specific work. And uh, I knew because the subject of the book series is animal ethics. It's about philosophy. What does it mean? Why? What is the reasoning in Hindu traditions of uh, how we relate with animals? And I understood I need to address, in that case, not only cows, but uh, the broader subject of uh, animals, non-human animals. And so that became one chapter for which I had to do a good amount of reading. But that was mainly desk and reading work. <laughs> yeah, and then and then I thought, well, I, I'm talking about cows and I want to keep that as my main focus. So let's go back to cows and let's talk about uh, my own uh, society, ISKCON, and what they are doing and uh, what are the challenges some of those projects may have. And I decided it would be good to have one uh, or two projects in India and maybe a couple of projects in the West. And so that's what I did. And with the final chapter before the concluding short chapter, I turn attention to those projects with a focus on how may this develop in the future. So in this way, the whole book goes from very ancient past into the present, uh, especially India, and then stepping back, what is the philosophy, the reasoning, and then going to the, again, the present, looking to the future. And in the process, I thought, actually, this subject could use Probably three or four or five volumes, not just one volume. <laughs> Which is, in a way, a monography. So it's, it's big in a way already. A monograph, yeah. A monograph. Yeah, so I'm very curious, because before you started writing this book, you already have some, uh, some knowledge about the topic. You read a lot of uh, information uh, in... Shastra in ancient texts, but curious whether you found something that uh, was striking for you, that was uh, kind of a revelation, 
mm-hmm. or something surprising for you, some constatation that uh, that you were able to to see while you were working on the on this book. Sort of like a big, the clouds cleared away. Yeah, suddenly the light came (laughs) rushing through. Ah, there, that's the vision. Um, I'm not generally that sort of person who gets uh, big revelations. Uh, I think it was more, I'm more the plodding along type. And... I would say things opened up as I went along, and I found um, a lot of interesting things along the way. And one disturbing thing I found when I was uh, researching doing ethnography in India was mm, it wasn't so surprising. I kind of I expected it, and it was confirmed that the the strong feelings that those who are involved in cow protection, many of them cannot separate that from a sort of political perspective which says in a, in essentially Hindu nationalism is is the reality, it's the way that life should be. And we are Indian, Hindu, and we care about cows. But when you asked a little further what they mean, it turns out they're interested only in Indian breeds of cows. Ah, okay. And why only Indian breed? Because they're Indian, and I'm Indian. and So we don't really care about what you call cows, in the West, and they actually lumped them all together and called them Jersey cows because Jersey is uh, one breed from the West which was imported into India to um, interbreed in order to increase milk production at one point. Now they're reacting against that. And now it's all, it's either Indian cows or Jersey cows. <laughs> So that was, you know, well, it was a confirmation. It wasn't more so much a revelation. It was more of a confirmation uh, of what I somewhat anticipated. And so I, I, it was clear to me I don't want to adopt that position in the book. In fact, I would have preferred not to have this in the title, Hindu. And I explain in the first... Uh, pages of the introduction that actually this word Hindu is a problem, uh, that people who identify themselves as Hindu may have an understanding which is um, not what I'm writing about in this book. Uh, And still, I had to use the word Hindu because that's what I was commissioned to do, is to write a book about Hindu animal ethics. I think I would get a lot more readers in the West without the word Hindu. Um, because I suspect a lot of people, they say, oh, Hindu, no, I don't want I'm not interested in that. This orientation Something. to Indian religion. Yeah. So, but, you know, that is the subject. <laughs> so, so that's also the title. But I'm... 
also making this point, which Srila Prabhupada, my guru, was making, is it's not about, he never made this distinction of Indian and Western cows, to my knowledge. Uh, He was concerned that cows, um, all kinds of cows, be protected. And then it raises the question, okay, cows, but um, what about other animals? What about what they call water buffalo? In India, there's so many buffalo. What about them? Well, that's interesting because in uh, the the older literature, uh, we don't find that sense that uh, the buffalo is particularly sacred in the same way that the cow is. Hmm, okay, um, what's going on there? Are we talking about a kind of casteism? Amongst animals, well, yes, it could be that. Or racism. Casteism, racism. Yeah. Right, racism, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a kind of a kind of animal racism. Well, sometimes it's said amongst scholars of religion that religion and politics are two sides of the same coin. Which means you can't separate them. And from that perspective there's no surprise. If we're Uh, seeing cows from the perspective of religion, uh, then maybe we cannot separate that from from politics. What topic was uh, challenging for you to present? I don't know. For me, I'm I'm waiting to see because the book is it's out since almost one year, and I'm still waiting to get reactions. Ah. Oh. That's when I can see what was challenging. <laughs> ah. So this is still a challenge. Well, it, it depends how people respond to it. I think I've anticipated as best I could what sort of issues are there, and I've tried to give a balanced presentation, and there's probably going to be some who don't like it, and then there'll be hopefully some who do like it. <laughs> Um, but it's kind of too early to say. When it comes to academic reviews of the book, it's typical that it takes at least a year, maybe two years, maybe even three years before uh, you'll see a, a book review, a proper book review. I'm not talking about uh, endorsements. I have several endorsements for the book. These are short. They always say something nice. Yeah, so maybe one, one paragraph one is paragraph. an endorsement, yeah. um, but um, but a review can be critical. It can say, "Well, this is good, but this is not good," or whatever. And but but that would be coming from scholars. They're probably going to be fairly reasonable, and then you know there's going to be a whole spectrum. Uh, maybe somebody reads the book who is a hardcore vegan. And I'm saying in the book that there is this tradition of uh, we take milk from the cows and in the devotional, in the bhakti tradition, that milk is offered to Krishna and that becomes sanctified food and that's nourishment for human beings. The vegans are going to say, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't take to take any 
anything from animals is wrong. Uh, it's going to be exploitative, and uh, and so on. So let's see what they say, if any of them. There's, of course, a whole spectrum of vegans. Uh, some will be maybe more moderate. Uh, I'm. I was just talking about the so-called abolitionist vegan. They want to abolish absolutely all relations of humans with animals. Can we imagine such a thing? They want to imagine that because they say uh, that as soon as we have a relation with an animal, we exploit the animal. And we want to say in our tradition of uh, the Vaishnav tradition, it's quite probable that that will be the case as long as one is not caring for the animals within the context of the practice of dharma and yoga and bhakti. And in particular bhakti, because there we understand our relation with animals, specifically cows, is one of service. We're serving the cows as a form of service to Krishna. Oh, so it can be just something that is just the opposite, yeah. on, on, on opposite side from the exploitation. Exactly. Now, it's complicated because even from that position, it's easy to exploit animals. It's easy to exploit cows. One may say, no, we're protecting, we are caring for the cows. We don't kill the cows when they get older or something like that. Yeah, that's all nice, but there's degrees of quality. And so in the book I'm trying to I'm trying to argue that proper cow care, I like to use the expression cow care, is not only not exp exploitative, but it's it's serving and it's giving a purpose to the cow and the bull, uh, which is which is actually It's the appropriate relation between an animals. Well, as Gandhi put it, if we have a proper relation with cows, through that relationship we have proper relation with all animals. So it's a very strong statement. If someone is thinking about ecology and relation of human to, to the whole world, than saying that you can have proper relation to the world or to, to the animal world through cows mm. and through cows protection. That's yeah. something, you know, for me at least. It's a big claim. Yeah, it's uh, and yes. it's fresh and we need to think about it and find yeah. uh, why or how it is. Yeah, and that's one weakness, I have to admit, of the book, because I couldn't... That was the other limitation um, that the publisher gave me two years, and they gave me a maximum of 100,000 words, uh, which is, yeah, that's kind of what this is. <laughs> and they said, not one word more. <laughs> so you want to expand on something, uh, but nope. 
can't really do it because uh, we have to keep the word limit. And that's why I said, I, as I was writing, I was thinking, well, this could be two, three, four volumes to really get into everything. And another, or related to this uh, limitation, is uh, I'm not getting into any details in this book about... I talk about the economics, but I don't actually get into the real nitty-gritty, the numbers. Uh, I don't... Ideally, one would uh, go into great detail about, you know, how how everything can work economically in a sustainable way with cows and agriculture. But that's a whole huge area of research, which takes, I think, specialization, which I just don't have. This is a book on philosophy and, you know, some cultural study, you can say, some history. That's about as far as I could go. Because the main question was how it is, not how it could be, if... We do this way on that way, yeah. etc. Because so many question marks appears. Well, but it's a challenge also because someone may say, "Well, this is all great, so let's now do this." But can you show me an example of where it's already happening? And the answer is, not really. There's no one single place where you can say these people have really worked it out economically and everything to be, you know, completely self-sustaining and everything. It's uh, it's a good ideal, and the ideal should be pursued, um, but I couldn't find, but again, my time for research was limited, I couldn't find where is that project where I could say, okay, Here it is. Now everybody just do like they're doing, and we can scale it up all over the world. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> oh, that's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, my my point is, let's get started finding out how to do it. But until we get the inspiration to do it, we're not going to try to do it. So I'm trying to give the inspiration to do it. And I'm trying to... If the next scholar comes along and says, hey, come on, how come there's no... Where are the numbers? Show me some numbers. I say, yeah, that's your job. <laughs> Please. That's the next task. Oh, yeah. So maybe someone who is hearing us can help with it. Yes, let's hope. <laughs> okay. Let's see. There are people who are involved in the the profession of uh, I don't know the terminology even, but uh, they they do very sophisticated uh, research in ecology and sustainability. There's you know there is some good scholarship in that direction, but I don't know of any which has brought in the factor of of cows. There's Alan. Uh, Savoy in Africa. He's very popular now. He's uh, he's um, he's part of the cattle industry. He's just saying, uh, get your cows out on the pastures, and we can save the the ground. But he's not saying anything about stop killing. No, go ahead and kill. So that's not what we're interested in either. Yeah. So still we have 
some big needs uh, around the topic. Yeah, it's, it's a big topic. It can take, uh, you know, so many experts in so many areas to really work on it. And there are people in India who say, oh, yes, we're doing research. We are, we are researching the benefits of cow dung, for example, uh, and cow urine and, and milk. And we're also researching about uh, the sustainability and so on. And they have the best of intentions, no doubt, and maybe some of their research is good, but I suspect a lot of their research is with foregone, foregone conclusions. In other words, they've decided in advance, this is what we're going to find out, and then that's what they find out. So it's not, it's not science, <laughs> as we understand science to be. It's, it's, more like, it's more like folk knowledge, which is not to be discounted because, yeah, we all know science has its limitations, modern science, and folk knowledge has its maybe limitations, but also its potentialities. Anyway, uh, there's a lot of work that can be done. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a very interesting topic, especially my big question is uh, what about uh, nowadays situation of the world? in categories in terms of this climate catastrophe mm -hmm. and uh, what is going on with, with ecology. So the question is, what is the role or, or what could be the role of cows in this regard? Yeah, that's part of what would need to be uh, researched and demonstrated. But um, the... The, the basic thrust of uh, this understanding is that, again, if we take care of cows, we'll have the right relation with other animals. And as I see it, this means there's going to be less cows because to take care of them uh, for their natural life, you know, there's, there's so much uh, resources required for that. So much land is required. Uh, the, the, the meat industry depends on having a cow for only as long as it reaches what they call slaughter weight. As soon as it gets to a certain weight, they kill it. And the next one and the next one and the next one. And the dairy, dairy industry is, you can say, an extension of the meat industry because as soon as the cow starts giving less milk, Uh, it's off to the slaughterhouse. Uh, and so that whole industry is, of course, producing a lot of carbon. And some say, well, we should get rid of cows altogether because they're producing methane. Well, but if you, if you don't just uh, have, the, have the cows packed together in CAFOs, in these uh, places just for intensive feeding and then slaughter, but you have them in smaller numbers, then uh, you can reduce, but again, this needs more research, I think, uh, the methane, and you can use the methane as an energy source. And that's being done. That's As a fuel. That's, that's going on. It's not a big thing to make a, a methane tank uh, for for producing gas. I've seen it in India. It's pretty simple. 
but the larger scale, you know, it, there's a lot of debate that goes on on this, you know, relative amounts of uh, methane, and they say methane is however many times more of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide and so on. That's something also I haven't been able to get to the bottom of. But as I see it, if we start with the principle uh, of protecting animals, then we're changing our mentality in relation with the earth in such a way that uh, we become protectors and we become in a position of renovation and regeneration of the earth, uh, which then a lot of the problem with uh, carbon dioxide is the way we treat the soil. We expose the soil, the farms, uh, with monocultures. Uh, this is a huge thing. It's starting. They're starting to realize this. All of this, yeah, they, there's a lot of talk about regenerative farming, regenerative agriculture, but there's not so much about uh, the importance of, I won't even say cows, but root ruminants like cows and buffaloes and others for keeping the health of the soil I think we are at the end of my list <laughs> so I can mention that this book is available in yeah. English yeah and it's in open access it's open so. access uh, it's available just to download digital copy um, and we've had uh, 35,000 copies downloaded so far in the last 11 months so I think somebody's reading it <laughs> I have probably the last question is there any plan to write something else about cow protection, like some articles or some, I don't know, shorter version, mm. maybe some novel or whatever <laughs> about this the same topic, but from like other point of view or for some other people, because I believe mm. this book is uh, uh, written in... It's an academic book. Yeah, it's an academic book written in a scholar way. Mm -hmm. So some people can have some... Uh... Yes, I'm thinking about it. I may do that. I've written an article about uh, cow protection in ISKCON. That's going to be published very soon in the ISKCON Communications Journal, uh, which is getting revived finally after 10 years. Oh, that's great. And um, I'm being asked to help to write a like a pamphlet uh, for within our well within our society, but also for a wider public. Um, but I'm also thinking of uh, a small book which would be in the form of a conversation. Can ask question, respond back and forth, and make it readable for all kinds of people. I'm thinking about it. Let's see. I think I, I asked all questions. Uh, some answer appeared before I asked question. <laughs> question, actually. Okay. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you very much.
again and uh, I hope to hear you s soon with okay. some other topic. All right. Thank you.